0: Next weekend I'll be attending the annual Lay's and Teachers Association meeting up in Garrison. And as part of that meeting there'll be discussions about teaching and student-teacher relationship. And they are getting increasingly open to discussion of psychological issues involved. As part of that, I will be—I've sent them all uh, one of the chapters from uh, my book as a basis for some of their discussions on the student-teacher relationship. Uh, so I thought I would read that uh, chapter to you today, uh, based on the koan "No Heat or Cold." It's on the theme of surrender and submission in practice. A monk asked Tung Shan, When cold and heat come, how does one avoid them? Tung Shan said, Why not go where there is no cold or heat? The monk said, How is it when there is no cold or heat? Tung Shan said, When it's cold, it kills you with cold. When it's hot, it kills you with the heat. When I first began sitting with a sangha, all of whom were Americans, led by a Japanese teacher, we had a habit of answering, Hi, whenever we were told to do something. Hi, which is Japanese for yes, was just about the only Japanese word we knew, except for Kensho, of course. (laughs) And the joke was, we would never be told what the word for no was because we would never need it. (laughs) The habit of reflexively saying yes is actually a very good practice. It It can help make us aware of how often we unconsciously let ourselves back away from what is being asked of us through anxiety, fear, or more subtle forms of avoidance. Joko always taught us to pay attention to those subtle moments of hesitation, those moments when we try to say no instead of yes to life in an attempt to manage our insecurity. This koan is likewise about saying yes to everything especially to those things that we come to practice seeking to avoid. The monk wants to know how to avoid cold and heat and is told instead to let the cold kill him, to let the heat kill him. We're not just literally talking about cold and heat here of course. We're talking about cold and heat as examples of what we're afraid we can't handle, and of all the likes and dislikes that practice is meant to confront. It's important to notice the monk asks about cold and heat as a pair. At a metaphorical level, he's asking about all the dualisms we confront, from life and death to liking and disliking. And the monk's question posits the existence of a place beyond these dualisms, a particular curative fantasy that Tung Shan makes explicit, leading the monk on when he asks, why not go to where there is no cold or heat? Is there such a place? Can we reach a different state of consciousness in our sitting, where we transcend all duality, where pain and pleasure dissolve as opposites? In one sense we can, In moments of total concentration or absorption, we can leave behind all our everyday likes and dislikes. And what happens then? We immediately compare this state with our ordinary state of mind and decide, I like this one much better. (laughs) And we're right back where we started, in the middle of likes and dislikes. No, this koan is not about going into a state of oneness beyond the dualities of cold and heat and somehow staying there full time though perhaps that's the fantasy behind the monk's question Exposing that sort of fantasy is the real work we have to do in ourselves with a koan like this Exposing the curative fantasy of transcendence in whatever form it takes in our own lives how we all secretly wish to go beyond. We could say this koan exemplifies the collision of that transcendental fantasy with surrender to reality. Surrender is another word for completely saying yes to every moment, a yes so total we lose ourselves in it. In Tung Shan's way of speaking, we let it kill us as a separate self, who stands in any way apart from the experience itself, liking or disliking it. Surrender is a total letting go, and as such lies at the heart of many spiritual practices and traditions. Yet in light of our current psychological thinking, we can also see that it sometimes stands in an uneasy relation to submission and obedience. Monks in a Catholic monastery take a formal vow of obedience to the rule and to the abbot, turning over their will to God's representative. Not my will, but thy will be done is a fundamental principle for overcoming the tyranny of ego. But what about when the abbot himself acts like a tyrant? Thomas Merton spent years in conflict with his abbot, who refused his requests for more time in solitude and with the church hierarchy who for years refused permission for him to publish anything relating to issues of social justice race or the Vietnam War can obedience to any authority no matter how arbitrary be made into a useful practice for overcoming my own egotism is there any point at all where I have to be able to say no It is perhaps not irrelevant to that question that the teacher who taught his students to always say "hi" was later embroiled in charges of sexual misconduct. Untangling the relationship between surrender and submission is no easy task. Psychoanalyst Emmanuel Gent has suggested that the longing for liberation inherent in genuine surrender lies behind the maladaptive compromises involved in submission and masochism. He went so far as to call masochism a perversion of surrender, a way in which our longing for genuine release at the deepest level is hijacked by submission to another person's will. How can we recognize genuine surrender? Here are some of the characteristics that Gantt used to distinguish it from submission. It does not necessarily require another person's presence, except possibly as a guide. One may surrender in the presence of another, not to another, as in the case of submission. Surrender is not a voluntary activity. One cannot choose to surrender, Though one can choose to submit. One can provide facilitative conditions for surrender, but cannot make it happen. It may be accompanied by a feeling of dread and death, and or clarity, relief, and even ecstasy. It's an experience of being in the moment, totally in the present, where past and future... The two tenses that require mind and the sense of secondary processes have receded from consciousness. Its ultimate direction is in the discovery of one's identity, one's sense of self, one's sense of wholeness, even one's sense of unity with other living beings. It is quite unlike submission, in which the reverse happens. One feels oneself as a puppet in the power of another, one's sense of identity atrophies. In surrender, there's an absence of domination and control. The reverse is true in the case of submission. It is easily confused with submission and often confounded with it for exploitative purposes. Certainly in life, they are often found together. Considering the central thesis of this paper... That submission can be viewed as a defensive mutant of surrender, this juxtaposition should not be surprising. Nonetheless, they are intrinsically very different. The distinction I'm making between surrender and submission helps clarify another pair that are often confused. Resignation accompanies submission. It's heavy, lugubrious. Acceptance can only happen with surrender. It transcends the conditions that evoked it. It's joyous in spirit, and like surrender, it happens. It could not be made to happen. That is all a long quote from Immanuel Gent. I have written elsewhere about how resignation feels like a dead end. Acceptance, on the other hand, feels like a starting point. Yet how often do we fail to distinguish them? and find ourselves trying to accept something that is extinguishing our hope or vitality. Killing the ego, if it's to lead to genuine surrender in Ghent's sense, cannot be equivalent to crushing our spirit. We learn to let go, but that yearning can be exploited by those who have unacknowledged desires to be dominant and in control. The repeated episodes of sexual misconduct by spiritual teachers can be understood as just such a perversion or exploitation of the student's longing for surrender. As Ghent says, Erotic fantasies in relation to the analyst, usually, but by no means only, in the case of a female patient of a male analyst, or the wish to make love with the analyst, so very often turns out to have as its root the intense longing to surrender in the sense of giving over, yielding the defensive superstructure, being known, found, penetrated, recognized. Psychoanalytic studies of masochism can also provide us with some important insights to how people allow themselves to be drawn into what to outside observers, look like inexplicable acts of sometimes literally painful submission. What they tell us, first of all, is that masochism needs to be understood not as a case of a person seeking pain for its own sake, but as a byproduct of an individual's believing they must pay an increasingly painful cost for the love, attention, or recognition they are desperately seeking. Another term for masochism is pathological accommodation, which refers to a progressive sacrifice of one's own vital needs in the service of maintaining a relationship without which one imagines one cannot survive. Like the frog who is said can be boiled alive if placed in water that is very slowly heated to the boiling point, A person in a masochistically submissive relationship may make one compromise, one sacrifice after another, that cumulatively lead to the equivalent of emotional death. Like the female protagonist in the erotic masterpiece The Story of O, a person may engage in a series of painful sacrifices in the hope of holding the attention of an idealized object wanting to become special through the degree or totality of their commitment or su- submission. This is the defining difference between submission and surrender. Submission is tied to eliciting a response in another person, whether simple approval, love, or just an absence of criticism or abuse. True surrender, on the other hand, has no goal. Like Tung Shan says, it kills completely an expectation or gaining idea. It may seem like a metaphorical stretch to go from the fable of erotic masochism like Oh to the life of a Zen monk. Yet all too often the path of pathological accommodation can be the same, with a longing for spiritual attainment or specialness in the eyes of an idealized master substituting for erotic longing. The recurrence of sexual misconduct in spiritual communities is one sign of how blurred the lines between personal, spiritual, emotional, and physical surrender can become. But one does not have to go to the point of sexual abuse to be engaged in unhealthy forms of submission. As a psychoanalyst, I have seen a number of cases of Buddhist students who have had to leave residential communities because of chronic depression. Almost inevitably, these students have blamed themselves for their failure and have a great deal of trouble sorting out what has happened to bring them to their impasse. Their depression often seems based in what Ghent says about resignation. It has arisen from years of submission that have failed to give rise to genuine surrender and acceptance. Their teachers, sadly, all too often have no understanding of the role they themselves have played in creating this condition, and their failure to acknowledge their own enacting of the domination side in an unhealthy, dominant, submissive dyad leaves the student made to feel the fault lies entirely in themselves and their own personal psychopathology. Students in such circumstances are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Their relationship with their teacher, which is at this point totally identified with their life of practice, is too precious to give up. All their ideals, devotion, and meaning in life have become centered on holding on at all costs. Yet doing so is progressively draining as some vital emotional need is repeatedly denied or repudiated in the process. Any protest or expression of longing may be squashed by the teacher as further evidence of the student's emotional instability or an unhealthy attachment. Sometimes it's the very students who for years were considered the best that turn out to be suffering the most as years of compliance eventually begin to take their toll. These impasses are familiar to psychoanalysts, who sometimes belatedly have learned that they must look for the unspoken, unacknowledged ways in which seemingly good, a seemingly good analysis has led the patient down an unintended byway of submission and compliance. By trying to be a good patient, one who will hold the analyst's attention, win his love, or ward off his abandonment, they have learned, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, to repress unacceptable parts of themselves in the analyst's presence. Some things, particularly about how the analyst has become inattentive, critical, or just plain wrong, become become unsayable. The emperor's new clothes are always admired. The analysis then becomes a parody of itself, going through the motions, but having no real traction at the level of the unspoken agendas that are really driving it. This dynamic, I believe, has been reenacted over and over again in many Zen teaching centers. Compliance masquerades as non-self-centeredness. Submission is devotion. Masochism as aspiration. The key to breaking out of this pattern is for the analyst or teacher to acknowledge their own role in creating it. Unless we are prepared to admit that our own good intentions may mask a deeper unconscious need to always be seen as good, as always right, as always clear, we will never be able to acknowledge the ways in which we have inadvertently hurt the very people we're trying to help. The teacher's own goodness is unconsciously preserved by having the patient or student always be in the wrong. They are the one who's being defensive, deluded, or attached. I remember Joko's sly comment on a fellow teacher. There's nothing wrong with so-and-so. He just thinks he's enlightened. The only way out of this impasse is to re-own all of those parts of ourselves we have projected onto the other. We have to remember the wisdom of the old Walt Kelly cartoon character Pogo, who in a strip published at the height of the Vietnam War proclaimed, we have met the enemy, and he is us. We'll have a uh, open uh, discussion group in the uh, study group following the sitting today. We can have a discussion of this or any uh, Q&A you would like uh, during that time between 12 and 1.